welcome to Body Truth, a podcast that explores the relationship that we have with our body, food, and life told through a storytelling lens. I'm your host, Caitlin Parsons. I'm a certified intuitive eating and body image coach committed to changing the cultural narrative around how we take up space. Each week, you'll hear from thought leaders who are ready to dismantle shame through sharing vulnerably. We'll discuss everything from individual body image stories to challenging cultural messages, reshaping beliefs, practical support tools, and more. We'll laugh, we'll cry, we'll heal. Let's take the next step towards embodying our truth together. Hello. (laughs) I don't know why I just announced the show like that. I, okay, to be honest, I've recorded this intro an embarrassingly amount of times. I've dropped the F-bomb more than it's appropriate. And you know my objective with these intros. It's all about, it's about breaking up with perfection and just doing the thing. And I don't know why I can't get past that today. So here we are. And this is going to be the last intro that I record. (laughs) So you get what you get. We all get what we get. I am so excited that you're here. Truly, it is always such a gift to spend this time with you. And I cannot wait for you to meet my guest today. I have Jane Mattingly on the show. Jane is an incredibly powerful, special, unique individual. Her body image story is incredibly inspiring. The work that she does today in the world around eating disorder recovery is truly just so groundbreaking and so important. I can't wait for you to get to know her even more and feel seen and heard and understood and accepted by way of her truth today. I had so many moments when I was spending time with Jane, listening to her story where I felt so seen and so heard. There were so many parallels, so many um, just points of interest that really made me think, God, we're all so connected in so many small but intimate ways without even knowing each other. And conversations like this are just always such a beautiful reminder of that. So I hope that you feel the same as well too, or I hope that you find this conversation supportive for you, however you need to right now, I guess is my, what I really want to offer you. That being said, we do talk a lot about eating disorders in this particular conversation. If you've listened to this show, you know what I'm about to say, please honor wherever you're at right now in your own journey. If you feel like eating disorder related talk is particularly triggering and taxing for you, this this is probably a conversation that you will want to pause and come back to. If you feel like you are far enough along in your own journey where conversations like this are more supportive than triggering, please press forward. Know that you can always pause at any point in the conversation. It's not either or, it's both and, which Jane and I talk about in this talk today. Um, And if you feel like you're at a place where you're uh, ready to just press onward and feel really rock solid in your nervous system right now, um, welcome. I'm, I'm just so glad that you are here and about to go on this 
little adventure with Jane and myself in the next hour plus. Let me tell you more about Miss Jane Mattingly before we dive in. Jane is a master's level eating disorder recovery coach and the owner of the global virtual coaching group practice, Recovery, Love, and Care, LLC. Jane identifies as a fully as fully recovered from a lifelong eating disorder. Jane practices under the notion that full recovery is possible and that with proper support, dedication, self-care, and time, all individuals can find full recovery. Jane works from a tailored and health at every size perspective and believes that finding body acceptance is a key component when finding full recovery. We talk, of course, about Jane's personal body image story, her experience moving through her eating disorder, what that looked like, how she found recovery. We talk about a lot of nuances of eating disorder, specifically as it relates to diet culture and some of the underlying symptoms that might not be so obvious for so many. We talk about how to come beside somebody who is struggling possibly. And if you are in a position where you are really seeing signs or symptoms or truly just getting that gut intuition that you need to speak up and say something, Jane so brilliantly shared the best way to demonstrate an intervention and hold an intervention with anybody in your life who that might be appropriate for right now. We also talk about Jane's body right now and her experience being in a disabled body and being diagnosed with a chronic illness that led to her current life chapter, the body that she's in, how that's, how that's really shaped her life and herself as a human over the past four years. And a lot of her expertise, she really went above and beyond in this conversation in not only her own truth, but really her education, her professional experience. There's a lot of tools and tips and takeaways that you'll find in this conversation as it relates to food and body image healing, particularly around the holidays as well too. Jane and I made it a point to really emphasize this towards the end of the conversation, best practices moving through the holidays so that you can really have a neutral to great holiday season and some of the ways to get there wherever you're at in your life right now, um, specific to food and body, but really we zoom out and these can be applied to a lot of just life things in general. So I hope that you enjoy. We will link all of the ways that you can connect with Jane in the show notes, as well as all of the things that are happening in this community. If you are not on the weekly email that I send out. That is a one-stop shop for all things happening in this community, plus a lot of other body image and intuitive eating tools, resources. I send this out every Sunday. It's one of my favorite things that I do in this community. And so I hope that you find joy and support um, through receiving these in your inbox and just have a really nice grounding start to your week, as well as some tools in your toolkit. All right. That is it. <laughs> Thanks for allowing me to just be myself and be a goofball in your presence because really that's uh, 
<laughs> a big part of my life and one of the um, just most fun parts of breaking up with just a lot of the perfectionism and bullshit that plagued me for so many years. So I love you. I'm going to go take a little break and drink some tea and have a little cozy holiday evening. I hope that you are carving out time in your days to do the same over the next few weeks. I'll talk to you soon. Enjoy this conversation with Jane. Jane Mattingly. Hi, welcome to the show. I'm so excited you're here. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So much to talk about, like you and I just went over. (laughs) So let's just dive in and get to your story. So the first question that we ask everybody on the show is your first body awareness moment. So Mm. what did that look like for you? That moment where you realized I'm in a body and this means something in the culture that I'm living in. What did that look like? Yeah. And also how did it impact your relationship with with yourself, food, body image, all the things, just Mm -hmm. speak your truth. Wonderful. Yes. Thank you. So the first thing that comes to mind, there's two things. Um, But the first thing would be when I was 10 years old, Um, I went through puberty very young. Um, You know, as an eating disorder professional, I now know that going through puberty um, at a young age, like early onset puberty is a predetermining factor or risk factor of having an eating disorder. Um, and it makes sense, right? Because when your body changes like that, it's, it's, you become body conscious very, very quickly. Um, and when you're that young, no one else is changing. Everyone is little, little babies, little children all around you. Um, and so that was like a traumatic thing for my body and for me and to make sense of it. My family was a very supportive and lovely. Um, my mom prepped me all of that stuff, but my mind was just not ready for that, um, to compare myself to, okay, why is my body changing? Why is my body bigger? What are these boobs? Why am I, you know, bleeding all of this stuff? And my friends aren't right. It became a point of shame for me. I was the tall girl. And that is really like, I can put myself back in that, that fourth grade, little sweaty or sweaty, (laughs) sweaty 10 year old, um, that I just, I became so, insecure in my body and doubtful of my body. Um, and I would say that was definitely the first moment that I became aware. And the sad thing is it was shameful. Um, it makes, you know, I look back on it now and it's, I just want to hug her, but it was, it was a moment of shame and it, and it bled into my preteen and teen years and young adulthood. Um, and you know, my mind then also goes to, Um, And we can talk about this, you know, a little bit later, but then, you know, like, I think we all have moments of change and rebirth as we grow older. And I really think that's happened to me in the last four years too, where I became so aware again, being in my body when I became chronically ill and disabled. Um, I had to relearn who I, who I am and what my body is. And even though it doesn't do what it usually used to do. So I think those are the two things I, I go to when you ask that question. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I'm so grateful that you shared your truth around this, but also educated us as well too, that 
the predisposition for disorders is so strong for early Mm -hmm. onset of puberty. What Mm -hmm. an interesting fact makes so much sense. And you have your own lived experience to really bring that to life as well too. So going through this, and, and I do also want to learn more about this Mm -hmm. second part of your story as well too so kind of going back to the first Mm -hmm. how did that impact your relationship with food and your Mm -hmm. body I I know from what you've shared publicly in your story Mm -hmm. that you struggled with an eating disorder Mm -hmm. how did that correlate with the shame that you were experiencing when you were in fourth grade you know, it's interesting because I was such a happy, happy, happy child. Um, you know, family used to say things like, if I were to come back as something, I wish I could come back as little Janie, you know? Um, and then a, like a light switched <laughs> and I became so anxious or, or maybe it was that I was happy and anxious. Um, but my anxiety really took over when my when my body started to change. And I think the way in which I regulated that anxiety was hyper-focusing on my body. Um, I think it was focusing on what my body did with the food, um, focusing on how my body felt after I ate, like in a very unhealthy way. Um, Again, like hyper-focusing on those things. Um, emptying the food, you know, like just very conscious of what my body was doing and how it looked and how it felt. Um, you know, again, like I was tall, I was a tall girl. Um, that was something that it was like a complex almost that I got, um, taking up less space was just like the biggest goal I had little did I know that that is the goal I had, but it was, Mm -hmm. um, and it just manifested into, um, I became a dancer because I loved it. And I was good at it and it manifested into, um, this subjective world of what my body could do and what it looked like. Um, and I started to micromanage my food, uh, micromanage my, um, how my food digested, how my body moved, um, pushed it so hard. And the thing that's is so sad and so common, so, so common is no one knew. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I didn't even know, um, that I had an eating disorder. I, I didn't, I truly thought I was normal. I thought it was normal to not eat, um, or eat so little, um, and be so hyper-focused on what I ate and the choices I could have in my body. Um, because I looked quote unquote normal, um, And this does happen very often. I would say like 90% of the time, especially with the clients I see, most people are like kind of given this hall pass, um, whether there's intention or not behind it, where it's like, you seem fine, you look fine, but you're really like, you're dying inside. Um, And it affects everything. Um, It affects your social health, your emotional health, mental, physical Um, And for me, that just, again, it was like hyper-focusing on my food, my intake restriction. Um, And, you know, high school, I would say it was just, I I thought, again, I was just normal. And then in college, it became, I guess, 
a little bit more abnormal in my eyes, even though looking at it all now, it was all an eating disorder. How did you know? How did you get to that point where you realized that it was an eating disorder? Did someone yeah. bring it up to you or did yeah. you do some research on your own? You know, it's, I love that question. And it makes me think of something. This is really common as well. Um, uh, I know you had Julia um, Fit Fat and all that on this podcast. And we've talked about this before that we were both this way. I was also like incredibly fascinated with eating disorders mm-hmm. in high school and college. Like I wrote papers on it. Um, which is so like now as a, as a therapist, I'm like looking back at that. I'm like, okay, my subconscious knew something like, wow, I was so interested in this, but I think I wanted to be so interested in it to almost like prove that I was okay on some level because I didn't necessarily fall into this textbook version of eating disorders that we learn in eighth grade, you know, like, um, you know, anorexia or bulimia, and it looks like this. And so it was interesting because I knew so much about eating disorders. And then I was 22 and I moved out um, to Jackson, Wyoming to, it was a huge risk that I took to um, be close to my brand new boyfriend at the time, who's now my husband. Um, It was like the biggest risk I'd ever taken. Um, I graduated college and I moved out to Jackson and it was just for quote unquote the summer and it turned into four years. <laughs> um, but I was really unwell and, um, poor Sean at the time, you know, was not emotionally intelligent necessarily. Um, he didn't have the resources to understand what was happening. Um, like we joke, uh, this was actually even in like our wedding ceremony, um, like we joke, like I would cry and he'd be like, stop crying. <laughs> and I would just then cry even harder. Um, like he really didn't understand. And then he did hear me purging my food after dinner and I denied it. Um, and he said, okay, well, we're, we're going to talk about it. You have to get help. And I recovered for him. Um, and I, then after I went and got help and got a therapist and a dietitian, um, and had doctor support all outpatient in Jackson. I then recovered for myself, but I first had to recover for him because I didn't really understand what was happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always tell people, I tell my clients now, like recover for a doorknob if you have to, you know, like do whatever you need to do, um, just to get better. And, and it was Sean, it was, um, cause he said, you know, to me, um, I, I can't, we can't make this work if you don't love yourself, if you can't, if you can't take care of yourself. And I was falling apart at the seams. What were some of the signs that you were noticing for yourself or that he was noticing besides the, the mood swings that you just mentioned, the really mm-hmm. heightened emotions? What were some of the other signals that something yeah. was wrong? Well, definitely the purging. That wasn't normal. Um, you know, that is I think some of the most harmful behaviors that you can use. Um, I was also hyper fixated, um, on how food was made, making my food, um, controlling situations. And it's funny because, you know, I think going through recovery from an eating disorder makes you incredibly resilient. 
but being in an eating disorder is proof that there's no resilience at all. Mm. And it's funny because people that do have eating disorders usually seem that they have it all together, but it's this facade because the second emotions come, we numb them Mm -hmm. with, with, with anything we can use, um, your restriction exercise, whatever it is. And that was a big thing that I started to pick up on is that I really wasn't emotionally resilient. Um, you know, I was pushing this beach ball under the water and it kept popping up even harder, the harder I pushed, Mm -hmm. um, just falling apart. I always tell my clients, like you have to put recovery first and things get harder before they get better or easier. And let me tell you, (laughs) I was such a hard worker. I have always been very type A and I was fired from my job. Um, because I was just not doing well. Like my brain wasn't working. Like Mm -hmm. I remember I was working at HR at the four seasons in Jackson. I don't think I've ever talked about this publicly. Um, and I was, you know, in my early, early, early twenties and very sensitive, wanting to do my best. And I remember like, they were like, you've got to like, they would keep having meetings with me saying like, you've got to do this, this, and this, we're not seeing this. And I, I couldn't do it. Like, I couldn't copy both sides of the paper on the copy machine. Like I couldn't remember to do it because my body was just going off of reserves that it didn't have. That was one of the biggest red flags. I think that like, I wasn't able to balance any of it anymore. I had to put recovery first. Yeah. Yeah. I I'm curious if you experienced purging before you got to Wyoming, was that a symptom that you had struggled with Mm -hmm. before? It was, I used, um, I abused laxatives, um, when I was in high school, um, you know, with eating disorder, what I know about it now is digestive issues. Um, it's kind of like the chicken or the egg type of thing. It's like, yeah, it's like, it's one of the most confusing parts of disorders. Yes. It's, it's really mind boggling. Cause it's like, did the delayed like motility and constipation cause for me to want to hyper-focus on these things? Mm-hmm. Um, or did, you know, me hyper-focus on these things cause the constipation? Right. Yes. Um, so I did that. I over-exercised a lot. I would dance, dance, danced, um, and didn't eat enough. And the purging, the throwing up started in, um, college. And it was, again, I always talk about this like hall pass that is always given to us in, um, our recovery journeys or eating disorder journeys, I guess I should say where it's not intentionally given to us, but when a doctor kind of oversees something or a friend says, Oh, that's normal. Um, it gives the eating disorder this power. And again, intent is not there. Um, it's lack of resources or understanding, Yeah. but, um, I remember my roommate was like, I, I went and I told her I threw up and she was like, Oh, that's fine. I do that. Mm-hmm. And from then on, I like, I truly convinced myself that like, I didn't have a problem. Jane, this is so interesting. I, there are so many 
things yeah. that you're sharing in your story that are so parallel to mine. Really? As well. Yes, definitely. I, I was so interested in eating disorders when I was wow. a kid and I struggled with some version of an eating disorder from the time I was in sixth grade up until mm. I was my, you know, late twenties. Wow. Um, and I, my predominant eating disorder was bulimia and I never identified mm-hmm. as bulimic mm-hmm. um, because of the, the lack of, I guess, self-awareness and education yeah. and just the reinforcement yeah. as well as how we know most, uh, most bulimics are um, in a pretty quote unquote average size body. You know, there was mm-hmm. never really any concern yeah. From a physical standpoint on the outside. Um, yeah. yeah, I really hear wow. that. And one of the things that is resonating the most in your story that I can also attest to for myself is just this, oh, this intense urge to suppress emotions without mm-hmm. even realizing it. But yeah. you mentioned at the beginning of your story, being a kid with all of these feelings and anxiety being the predominant emotion. And that's, I mean, we feel our feelings in our bodies. They're somatic. And so the discomfort with just feeling that emotion, Mm -hmm. what, what was that like with in your environment growing up? How were emotions talked about or not talked about, or Mm -hmm. what was kind of the, the story with emotions in your home environment or dance, even school. Yeah. Yeah. I love that question. By the way, thank you for sharing your story too. And I think a lot of people resonate with that where it's like this, um, lack of self-awareness. It's thank you for sharing that. Um, but I, what's interesting is I was always a very sensitive soul. Um, I was always called an old soul, um, I was Me very too. sensitive. Yeah. I think that's <laughs> to this day. <laughs> wow. Yes. I remember like rolling my eyes as like a little girl. Yes. Like, I was like, okay, well, what the hell does that even mean? <laughs> Same. Like, I remember being another like, way of saying like, you're weird. <laughs> yes. Oh my God. Are we the same person? I remember being like 11 years old and somebody saying you're like an old soul and feeling so weird and just like awkward about it. Yes. And like, yeah, it is the weirdest thing to tell a child. Um, but it's also <laughs> accurate in some yes. <laughs> Totally. Like, yes. And yes, I still am very much. Um, you know, but I was very sensitive and I was um I had a really healthy family situation. We talked about all of our emotions. We started going to therapy at like a really young age. I was a very like my family obviously everyone's family has their faults, but like, it was such a healthy upbringing with that. Um, and I, most of my, my emotional attachment styles came from childhood friends. Mm. Um, I had a friend that was really toxic, really, really toxic. Um, and I mean, it was, it was to the point where like it, we met, you know, in preschool and then my mom said I'd come home crying. Um, but I would keep going back 
And it was a toxic, emotionally abusive relationship that I partook in and also was like a victim of in some ways. Mm -hmm. Um, I was always the one that was like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Are you mad at me? Are you mad at me? Mm -hmm. And it was because I was in this relationship that like was just so manipulative (laughs) and it was from the age of like three till 18. Um, and so much of it was so good. And so much of it was so bad. Um, and I know that that really affected my attachment style and my emotional resilience um, and the way I self-preserved mm-hmm. and chose to regulate my emotional, my nervous system. Um, that was a big thing for me. I mean, people would always like friends would also like use the word sensitive as like a weapon. Yes. Yeah. Um, and then I cry. <laughs> <laughs> which is like the one thing you don't want to do when someone calls you sensitive. Um, so I just always felt vulnerable and fragile. Um, and to be honest, like my mom would always say, like, I think you'll find your time once you're out of school. And she was right. Like, I didn't even really like college. Um, like I did, but like, I didn't, I just like, was like, I don't, I was an old soul, even at that point. Mm -hmm. Um, like again, like when I went out to Jackson, Wyoming, my mom was like, go, like, I was like, I don't know. Like, you know, for instance, it was my senior spring break and I, Sean, I met him in Italy when I was studying abroad and he was out in Jackson, Wyoming and we were talking and, um, she was like, I was like, should I go out there for, you know, he wants me to come out. And she's like, go like, do it. And I remember being like, wait, what? And she was like, take the risk, like go. And it was something I just never did. Like take those risks. Um, I was very timid and coy in those things. I knew how to have fun, but to like an extent. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That is, that is so interesting, Jane. And especially what you mentioned about the toxic friendship, I was just going to ask, did you see this pattern play out in any other areas of your life? Like this toxic, yeah. uh, toxic relationship or perhaps some of these people-pleasing tendencies? Uh, yes. I mean, I think once you are in those situations, you become vulnerable to them at, from, at times, like you get into patterns and cycles. Um, I never really had it with, with romantic relationships, but with friends I did. Um, and it really took a lot. I mean, like in work relationships in, um, where I kind of like give my, my all to everyone, to that one person or someone, they make me feel special. And then it'd become, I'd be, I'd be like, it, it would just be manipulative. Yeah. Um, and so Honestly, like it probably in the last like six years, I've really, really done so much work on that. How so? What do you feel like have been some of the biggest shifts for you in that area of your life? Yeah, on it. Yeah, um, I think it needed like it, a lot of it needed to happen. Um, I think boundaries, my own personal boundaries, and being okay with people being upset mm-hmm. was a big thing for me. Um, knowing my, my truth and my worth, um, and my value as a person, even if maybe someone else didn't, 
and really seeing how relationships, you know, don't have to be all or nothing. Um, we can have like friends of for a season, friends of a lifetime, friends of the heart, friends of the road, and um, or friends of for a reason, you know, different things like that. So I think that kind of work, I mean, going to therapy and um, being really self-aware of how energy um, energetically drained I am after being with someone um, that has really changed my perspective on things. Yeah. Yeah. It's so, it's so incredible how you just described all of that because just hearing and witnessing Mm -hmm. you say all that, I see so many patterns and parallels to eating disorder behavior. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And isn't it so interesting? It is a relationship, how you are in relationship with your friends, with your family, Mm -hmm. with your house, with your money, with your food, Mm -hmm. with your body. It's really all relationships and how you choose, you know, your own self-worth, self-trust, self-awareness in all of these relationships. So it is so interesting when you start to do this work and it sounds like it's incredibly true for you because it does impact so many other areas of your life when you just start to work on even one of these areas so much so and you're so right I mean like it the I always like I'll talk about this with clients too where it's like your relationship with food is usually synonymous to your relationship with money people Mm -hmm. and or your body you know and it's it's very true for me that's for sure yeah it's very true for me as well too. I think yeah. you're for most people who are kind of mm-hmm. going through this, this space. Yeah. So before we talk more about your recovery and mm-hmm. this next chapter of your body and the body yeah. that you're in today and all of these things, I want to go back to one thing that you said that I'm particularly curious about. And I think a lot of people in this community will be too, but just some of the behaviors that do go more under the radar You mentioned that probably 90%, I think you said, of the clients that you see wouldn't really diagnose themselves Mm -hmm. with an eating disorder. And so what is that point for somebody to reach out or somebody to be aware of when it is reaching a point where it's on the verge of a full-blown eating disorder in the space of diet culture? This is where Mm -hmm. I, I personally have... Mm-hmm. So much frustration with this question just professionally right? because there's just so much overlap. So how do you, how do you yeah. really navigate that? Yeah. What a good question. And it's, it's tough. Um, but it's also not <laughs> in that, like our relationship with food and body should not be hard. Um, and it is because of the culture we live in. Mm. So it is hard. Um, I don't think it's easy for anyone, anyone at all. Like, I don't think having a relationship with your body and having a relationship with food is, is easy for, for someone's entire lifetime. I think someone at some point is going to have some type of toxic relationship with their body or food because of the culture we live in. Mm-hmm. When it becomes, I know a lot of the missing signs is like when it becomes a hyper-focused, obsessive, um, compulsive focus or comfort that is when it becomes a problem. When it's, when it's, when all of your pillars of health are being affected, 
um, or you're only focusing on one pillar of health, you know, like if it's only your physical body, if it's only your nutritional body, mm-hmm. um, even like, you know, just hyper-focusing on exercise, how much you're putting in your body, what's in the back of labels, um, you know, what's going out of your body, focusing on, you know, cleansing your body, things like that. Like if it starts to bleed into your life, it's not normal. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are the big things that went on unnoticed for me, you know, is like, it's not normal to count your almonds. It's not normal to have, you know, peanut butter and jelly on a wafer cracker. Mm -hmm. Um, it's not normal to skip breakfast. It's not normal to have coffee for breakfast. It's not normal to exercise to the point of, you know, wanting to pass out. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, you know, not normal to have a bunch of digestive issues at such a young age and be so hyper-focused on that. Um, you know, it's also not normal to spend so much time in the mirror or have such a terrible, terrible self-talk and dialogue with your body or fear of your body changing. And so having, I think, an understanding of that and getting someone help as soon as possible um, early, early intervention is like the best thing you can do. Um, the best thing you can do for someone, um, because, and people, I think parents and friends are usually scared of doing that. Cause it's kind of saying like, oh, well, that's, that's almost like solidifying. There's a problem. And it's like, no, like the earlier intervention, the more chance they have of living sustained recovery. Mm-hmm. So in your experience, you would advise that intervention from either friends or family just as soon as possible? As soon as possible. Yeah. Like to do that because I'm sure a lot of people are going to hear this also and be like, I know somebody that I could have a conversation like this with, Mm -hmm. but I want to make sure that it's um, not overtaxing on my nervous system or a place of love and support. So how do you set the container to have that type of intervention? And is there another word for it perhaps? Because I feel like that's such a stigmatized word as well too, unfortunately. I know it really is. I mean, it's, it's a knowing it's a realization. Um, you know, but they, I mean, the inward intervention is used even clinically, um, very much for eating disorders and that it's like, because it's, it's, you, you become a slave to it. And I hate using that word. Um, but it is very much that, um, you have no other choice than it feels that you have no other choice than to obey, um, all the things that the eating disorder is saying, and you choose that over everything else. Mm. So to intervene is like the best thing you can do. And that might be sitting down and having a conversation, having a conversation saying, I'm noticing these things and I'm really worried. I'm really concerned and worried. And I know that maybe you don't want to hear this, but I hope you know that this comes from love or that maybe one day, you know, this comes from love, but here's some, you know, um, I want to get you help and I want to help you know, you look into that, would you, you know, be interested in calling some of these therapists or looking at some of these treatment centers? And that's usually for someone, you know, who's an adult. If it's a child, um, I would say go see a therapist like as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, usually parents are really scared to do that, but 
um, if they think, and usually I say if like you think there's a problem, there is a big problem mm-hmm. because eating disorders thrive in secrecy. So if like you're noticing something that usually means something much more worse is happening underneath the surface. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Eating disorders love secrecy. I think Julia and I were talking about that in, in her mm-hmm. episode too. It's just, it's, um, it is such a disordered way to have these really primal needs met. Yes. And um, so, yeah, I think it's brilliant. Everything that you just shared from an awareness standpoint, whether you're going through it or someone else is going through it as well too. And um, yeah, yeah, just having that conversation, how important that is. When you went through your own intervention with, it sounds like your boyfriend. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What was the next step with that? You said therapy, meeting with a dietitian, but did you go through a period where you were, resistant to even taking that next step. What was yes. the journey like? Yes. I was very mad. Um I actually left that night. I left his house, like stormed off. Um brought it up again like the next day. And again, and he was like, you know, I need you to promise that you're going to make a call. And so I remember um I went to the community counseling center, but I also um called um, my mom and was like, Hey, like, I think I want to start seeing a therapist again, um, for depression and anxiety. And I kind of just like really thought that was my problem. Even though Sean was like, Hey, like, this is not normal. I was like, well, this isn't an eating disorder. And so, um, she was an out-of-state therapist that was really coaching me. Um, and I had an in-state therapist and then a dietitian. So I had like a coach, therapist, and dietitian, and, um, and a psychiatrist and doctor as well. And, um, I start, I was seeing her for about four, I was seeing my team for about four months (laughs) and we went on a trip, uh, to San Diego actually. And I remember we were sitting at a restaurant on the beach and I like looked at Sean and I was like, I want to tell you something. And he's like, okay. And I was like, I have an eating disorder. And he's like, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I, was like, I was like what and he was like well yeah like oh you know this like and yeah. but it was like the first time I'd ever really proclaimed it mm-hmm. um and then you know things got really hard like things got worse because I'd finally admitted it to myself so I held on even harder mm-hmm. and then I pushed through and things got a lot better but it was messy 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 yeah. What was the messiest part for you? What were some of the biggest parts of the resistance or mm-hmm. just changes that you were seeing or did not want to see in your own recovery? Mm-hmm. Feeling the feelings was the hardest part. I think not numbing the feelings. God, that is classically just yes. it's like that yes. is where the mess and the transformation mm-hmm. is like it's feelings. Yes. It was, it was so hard. I mean, my body changing was also incredibly hard. Mm -hmm. Um, and honestly feeling the feelings that was definitely the hardest part. How did you navigate both of those? Oh my God. What support tools do you feel like really stood out for you? Um, thank God I had a team. Um, Sean would come to sessions with me. 
um, which was really helpful. But it got to a point where like, I really wasn't handling it. Like I was, I was like, I was, I was like a monster. Like this Ed just like took over at, at one point and I just like really was having a hard time. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I wasn't putting recovery first and I finally surrendered to recovery. But before that it was really, really messy. Um, and then finally, once I was able to surrender, it was me talking about it with me opening up about it, not being ashamed, not keeping it a secret, telling my family, calling my friends. Um, Mm. that's, and like not being ashamed of my story. That's when I really was able to surrender. Yeah. 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 I mean, well, it is like impossible for shame to exist in vulnerability. I, that ex- that's something that I've learned from yes. all of Brene Brown's research and mm. it's so powerful when we speak our truth um yeah. it's one of the reasons why I created this podcast because I love that yes it's so important to be able to yeah. share our truth and our stories unapologetically and just watch that shame die um yes. it, isn't, it doesn't deserve to exist yeah I love that I love Brene Brown gosh <laughs> me too <laughs> We're best friends <laughs> in another life. Right. Me, Oprah, Brene Brown, we're all best friends. Oh, yes. Amazing. <laughs> so from a physical standpoint, I know this is something that so many people in this community are curious of just with recovery and healing in general when your body does change, because that is a big piece of the puzzle for so many people in this experience and one of the reasons why so many people avoid doing the work Mm -hmm. um and you know it can your body is meant to change your body changes throughout all different times of life and so what did that mean for you and what were some of the what were some of the tools that you used on your own separate from in treatment Mm -hmm. um on those really tough body image days Yeah. Well, the craziest part of this is it really like blends into where I am now in that I, what honestly, what really helped me in my recovery is celebrating what my body could do Mm -hmm. moving. I was so, I was so active and I loved getting strong and seeing that I needed to eat and fuel my body and, that it was okay that my body changed and I wasn't going to be my 13, 16 year old self. Um, that was a big piece for me. Um, and the thing that's crazy is like, then about three and a half years ago, my body stopped doing, um, and I became disabled Mm. and I was fully recovered at this point, but it was like, wait a minute. (laughs) I, here I am like preaching and knowing, oh, like love your body, you know, for what it can do. And here I am being like, but what if it stops? Then what? And now I'm learning and I have learned over the the years that my body is just, it's just a vessel. That's all it is. It's just a vessel Mm -hmm. to let me live my life out, to live my core values out, um, to be human and flawed. Mm -hmm. And my body is just, lets me do that. 
Um, but in my recovery, it really was like being able to move, um, and celebrate my body. Um, can I ask a question around that? Because I also know in your story, and I think this is true for so many people who struggle with eating disorders, that movement is also one of the pieces of the disorder. Mm -hmm. How did you get to that place where it was from a neutral, joyful, um, celebratory part mm-hmm. of your life versus a punishment or compensatory right. or any of these yeah that well originally been there at first um I had to take it away mm-hmm. um oh, so then, you felt all the feelings girl yes <laughs> yes yes it's like, very wait. important in the recovery process and yeah I was like wait, you what? yeah when you can't <laughs> escape through movement you're like yes you're feeling them mm-hmm And then it was being in my body, like breathing, breath work, Mm -hmm. um, meditation, mindfulness, like truly being grounded in my body. Um, I got really into like yoga and more mindful movement that had motivation behind it of just like, wow, this makes my heart happy. This makes my mind happy. Um, Not about the calories, not about the sweating. Mm -hmm. And then kind of seeing what my body could do in regards to like where it could take me. So in Jackson, there's crazy mountains and like we would hike to these beautiful peaks and it'd be like, wow, like my body's taking me to these places. That's pretty freaking cool. Mm. Um, and celebrating that and it not being punishment in that, like, I would need to be feeling my body more during that and eating more, um, and being okay with emotional eating too. Mm -hmm. Um, but having a balance there, you know, taking the shoulds out of it, you know, um, and understanding my intentions and motivation for movement was a big thing then too. Mm. I love both of those words, intention, motivation. I think for myself, Mm -hmm. that was everything in recovery, just how the intentions shifted and the motivation for a lot of the same reasons that you described, you know, really just values, Mm -hmm. life experiences, connection, just being in this life with your body as a vessel versus, um, a spectacle, you know? Yes, absolutely. And, you know, like, I, I think, there was just, there was a piece of me that was like, wow, this is so cool to like, I was just so into like being adventurous with my body, like being like swimming. And, you know, when we moved to Charleston, then like paddleboard and activities and things I could do, like, that was a big, that was a big piece for me. Um, not hiding my body, you know, getting bigger with it. Mm-hmm. Um, up that space. Yeah. Taking up the space. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so I think those were the intentions. Those are the motivations behind it. Um, watching myself talk in those moments too. But then again, 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 like it, it all kind of stopped once my body stopped. Um, and so now like my philosophy is quite different in regards to how I approach recovery with clients. And I'm much more aware of how like ableist that state that saying is love your body for what it can do. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and I think it still applies, but also it's just different. Sure. Yeah. Well, I, I hear that. And I, I really understand that. And mm. it's also, if your body is breathing, yes, you know, your body is doing something, exactly. your body is being something, you know, yeah. if you have a heartbeat, however, whatever yes. ability you have or don't have, that's enough for you to celebrate. Absolutely. You know? And mm-hmm. I, I get it. Like I am, um, I am speaking from a place of being in an able body. I recognize yeah. that privilege. And so mm-hmm. I understand that might not sit well with people, me saying that in my own lived experience. So mm-hmm. I'm curious about yours. Can you share the details of yeah. how you came into a disabled body and your chronic Ill- illness and mm-hmm. just what that chapter of your story looked like? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so a, yeah, three and a half, four years ago, um, I found myself in the ER, um, with terrible, terrible, terrible pain. Um, and it was like, it was like really bad neck and head pain. Um, I went and they kept dismissing me, sending me home saying I was fine. Um, and I was having all these crazy symptoms, rashes. I was getting like blurred out vision, um, just problems. And I was, you know, being referred to different doctors. And I finally ended up in the ER one last time, pretty much like I was almost paralyzed from the waist up. I could not move. Um, and I started losing my sight and the pain was just excruciating. And um, I was diagnosed with intracranial hypertension um, also known as pseudotumor cerebri. Um, it's basically where your cerebral spinal fluid is just so the pressure is so high that you're like, it's swell your brain. It's like swelling. Um, and it swells your optic nerves and your brain. It's incredibly painful. Um, and it can make you go blind. Um, and so it was, it was causing me to go blind. And, um, I was eligible for a specific type of brain surgery. So I got that and I thought then my journey was over, um, but it wasn't, it was just starting. Um, I went to Mayo clinic a couple of times up in Rochester and then in Florida. And I was diagnosed with a genetic disorder called Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Um, it's a connective tissue disorder. Um, it's a rare disorder and it, makes, it made a lot of sense because I was born with it, but little did I know I had it. And my intracranial hypertension actually pushed it out because of the stress it caused on my body. Um, and you know, you kind of put all the puzzle pieces together. Like I was always dislocating things and I had lots of issues growing up, um, health wise that we just kind of were like, Oh, whatever, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, like what? So, the other sorry. Thing? Like what were some of the other things? Yeah. Lots of dislocations, um, a ton of infections, Mm -hmm. um, uh, a lot of head pain and gum. I had receding gums. I had gum grafts at like a really young age, Mm -hmm. um, really fragile, doughy, velvety skin, um, glass, uh, glassy eyes, Mm -hmm. Um, very, very bendy. I was just super hypermobile. Um, which is so interesting because mm -hmm. 
from just observing your story, this could easily, all the things that you're saying, it could be chalked up to, well, you were a dancer or it was just yep. your family genetic yep. or it was uh, some result of your eating disorder, your bulimia, like a lot exactly. of- exactly. A lot of these yes. things that you're saying kind of overlap with a lot of the other areas of your life, it sounds like. Yes, it is such a complex disorder. It's such a complex um, disease. Mm-hmm. So it's often like not found because it's so rare and complex. And often dancers, like are, like there are some dancers that have Ehlers-Danlos and don't know it because they're so bendy. They're so good at it. Um, but you know, uh, there's a big part of me that thinks if I knew I had Ehlers-Danlos when I was younger, my eating disorder would have been less severe. Um, I think I would have understood my body a lot more. So interesting. Um, yeah. yeah. And so then once I was diagnosed with that, things really progressed quickly. Um, I was diagnosed with a lot of neurological issues and neurological diseases, um, from Ehlers-Danlos, um, craniocervical instability was one of them. Um, which is the instability of your, um, skull to your spine. It's really dangerous, cause seizures, all these things. I was having very terrible symptoms. And so since then, um, I've had now, gosh, nine neuro slash brain surgeries. Um, I'm fully fused from the skull to C7 cannot move my head or neck. Um, I've had multiple spinal and spinal cord surgeries. I have some spinal cord injuries as well from it. And um, yeah, it's majorly affected my mobility, um, my motor skills, um, my ability to move um, and stamina. I use, um, I also have from my Ehlers-Danlos syndrome have uh, immune disease from it. Um, and so again, it causes like all these comorbidities because it is so complex and you have connective tissues all over your body. So it affects your heart, your organs, your, your, um, immune system, all of that. Right. But it's really affected my neurological system the most. And so it's been a rough ride. Um, I have a rollator now I have my mobility service dog. Um, but my body, again, it's like, it stopped doing, um, and I very recently, like kind of embraced in the past, like two years, the fact that I am disabled, um, and it brought so much freedom to finally claim that, um, rather than like, oh, I'll get better. I'll get better. I'll get better. Like this is a progressive illness. Um, and to finally like allow my body to just be without micromanaging it again, being even fully recovered from my eating disorder. It's like, here's just another obstacle we go through in our relationships with our bodies. Mm -hmm. Um, and it has been a hard one to say, and there will be more surgeries in the future. I mean, it's, it's a, it's been a rough ride. Um, but I have so much respect for my body more, more so than ever because of what it's gone through. Um, and yeah, it's, it's been a ride. So interesting just how your story 
um, has unfolded, Jane, mm-hmm. you know, can you imagine going through this chapter without being recovered or without having the tools for the emotional regulation and access yeah. that you do now and being able to just have this completely new relationship with yourself and your body and your relationships around you, just having mm-hmm. tools in place to navigate this part of your life right now. It's pretty incredible. Thank you. Yeah. I, I do think that I, it would be a totally different story. I don't think I would have gotten through all of this if it wasn't for my recovery. Um, I just don't, you know, like, now I've, I've turned my problem into my purpose in a lot of ways. You know, I do a lot of advocacy for disability and, um, illness and, you know, I just started the and initiative, which is allowing yourself to live within and outside of labels, um, living and, and being fat and being sick and being disabled and, and, you know, for me being disabled and CEO being sick and thriving, mm-hmm. um, the way I was able to live and was by embracing that label and getting my mobility aid and getting my service dog and allowing myself to surrender. And that made my life bigger. Mm. I wasn't at home all the time. Then I was able to get out. I was able I wasn't fighting it anymore. And it's so interesting because when, as an able-bodied person in the past, I always thought, you know, you were bound to mobility aids, you know, that's such an ableist thing to think, but that's what I thought. Um, and so I really thought for so long, like if I surrender to being disabled, that's giving up, that's giving in, but no, it made my life so big. I mean, like, so big. I can't even describe it because my life got real fucking small (laughs) when I got sick. Um, it got real small and I'm just so grateful that I was able to find my and and live and lean into it. And I don't think I would have been able to do that if it wasn't for my recovery. Yeah, it's, it, it is, remarkable and just so powerful you sharing all of this and your truth with all of this and how you are experiencing this and the advocacy that you're that you're doing now and the space that you're creating for others to heal it really is so inspiring and um thank you yes absolutely um in terms of the days that you have now that Mm -hmm. are not so great Mm -hmm because you're human and I'm sure they come up. How do you take care of yourself on those days? And if you are open to sharing, what are some of the triggers that you find now for just a shitty day, whether it's around your body and where it is now or health, just Mm -hmm. any of the things like what are the triggers and what are the tools that you use now this far along in your journey? Yeah. Great question. And you're right. We, we all have triggers all the time, right? We live in a dysfunctional disordered society. Um, I think one of the things that's been so freeing for me is understanding that I can't expect the world to change. I can try with my advocacy, but I can, I can change, I can change how I view things or treat myself. 
um, or how I distance myself from things or set boundaries. Um, a big, a big thing for me with triggers, um, has been my body changing, um, in the last three and a half years. Um, it's changed a lot drastically. Um, uh, I've gained a lot of weight. My body has gotten bigger. Um, and that's been really hard, um, because I can't do, I can't move. Um, I miss it. Um, just today I, you know, my best, one of my best friends here and her adorable child slept over last night and we had a wonderful little Christmas hang and they left this morning and we used to live so close. Um, and now we, we live a little bit further cause I just moved and I was like, Oh, I really miss driving. Like, I just, I want to get in there. I want to get in a car and go, I want to be able to ride my bike. I want to be able to do all the things. And that can be a trigger. It, it can. It's like, if I get hard on myself, I get down on myself. And one of the best things I can do is feel my feelings, um, allow space for my feelings, um, slow down. I am a workaholic. Um, it is something I'm constantly working on. And work is something I love and it's hard because my work has such purpose and passion as, um, someone who works with eating disorders and body image and advocacy. So it's like a good thing and a not so great thing. Um, so really setting boundaries with my work and resting, um, naps and getting outside, um, is a huge thing for me and self-care, um, you know, like really celebrating what my body is doing for me, even when it's hurting, like hell is, is something I really work on. It's something I call perceived body betrayal. You know, like we all experience it, especially if you have chronic illness or disability, we perceive that our body's betraying us, but really it's doing everything it possibly can to keep us alive. Mm -hmm. And so it deserves kindness and compassion. And I'm always, always trying to lean into that. Um, no matter how hard it gets, um, giving myself ease and leaning into compassion, I think is one of the biggest things I've been working on. Mm. So not easy either. Mm -hmm. So hard. <laughs> We're just not really taught how to do that in this culture. And so right. it really is this, um, seemingly easy skill, self-compassion, but it mm -hmm. bumps up against all kinds of things when yes. the skill is being built. So those are all amazing tools that you just shared. And it's just yeah. so cool to watch you actually um, walking your talk and living mm -hmm. in your truth and everything that you're sharing. Um, mm -hmm. Before we wrap today, I mean, we'll probably have to have you back on because yes, like a million other things that... <laughs> I want to ask you and ways that we could take this conversation, but yeah. in light of the season that we're in right now and the mm -hmm. holidays and all of the things, obviously no secrets here, food and body, hot topic during this time. There's a lot of triggers. There's a lot of discomfort. There's a lot of storytelling in our minds and just sticky situations that we find mm -hmm. ourselves. So I'm asking more from a client's perspective, not necessarily your own journey, but how do you support clients in navigating this time of year where these types of 
conditions are a little bit more sensitive. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It's, I mean, the holidays are so hard for everyone, right? It brings, I mean, I, we love the holidays and then it's also very stressful. Um, especially during these times when we haven't seen people in a while. And one of the biggest things I tell clients is prepare and manage your expectations. Um, that's a big thing, you know, really manage your expectations and it might not be the most wonderful time of the year <laughs> and it might be hard. It might be difficult and that's okay. And that's normal. Um, and having your support. So that might be a self-care kit. Um, like, you know, thinking of all the five senses. So that might be, you know, some essential oils that you bring or, um, you know, something like a body brush, um, to ground you or, um, like a wonderful podcast or playlist, or, you know, something that is just really simple and grounds you a lot, something to tune into your feelings, like a journal or, um, a FaceTime session with a friend, but really having like set aside time to take care of yourself, um, whatever that looks like. And you don't have to partake in everything, you know, like if families have a happy hour, you don't have to partake in that. If you don't want to you can go upstairs, take some time for yourself. Julia and I always talk about how our families are probably like, you know, they're incredibly respectful of it, but they're probably like, why is she upstairs? <laughs> you know, like, and it's yeah. sometimes you just have to like, take some time for yourself. Um, go outside, go for a walk. Um, read a book, you know, do what you need to do to take care of you. You do not have to say yes to everything and really managing your expectations. Um, I'm a huge animal person and I'm very lucky and privileged to have now my mobility service dog. So he'll be there with, with everything. He's also trained with like PTSD and trauma. So like he is so wonderful with like assessing my needs, but if there's something furry or fluffy, like go up and hug it. Um, but honestly, like in addition to all of those tips, your self-talk is one of the most important things. Mm -hmm. And remembering that like, this is one day, it's one moment. Um, it will pass. The feelings will pass. The fullness will pass. And you can do this. Like you will get through this. It will not hurt you. You are safe. Um, that's probably the biggest advice I'd give. Mm. sometimes like some of the more like hokey advice I give people is like people, <laughs> yeah it, it, people love to talk about themselves mm -hmm. so if someone brings up something at the holidays like if uncle joe brings up something at the holidays be like and asks about your weight or asks an incredibly invasive intrusive inappropriate question you can just say like, oh, I heard you got a dog or, oh, tell me about your trip to Hawaii or man, politics, right? Yes. <laughs> talk about whatever people like to talk about themselves. Um, yeah. A quick, a quick subject change is like yes. a really powerful secret weapon. Or I also like the exit strategy too, where it's just like, yeah. oh, God, I got to go to the bathroom real quick. Yes. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, really protecting your energy and managing those expectations, I think is a big one, you know, like 
Aunt Sue and Uncle Joe might not understand that you don't want to talk about these things. And that might mean that you just have to walk out of the room. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, It's a really tough time though. It's a tough time of the year. It's also a beautiful time of the year. Um, And so I do think it's about really like being kind to yourself and managing those expectations. You do not have to partake in everything. You know, I think that's something that I struggled with too, is like, I thought I had to partake in everything and really had to do all the traditions and keep it perfect. But I drove myself nuts doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or something that I fell into personally and, and see with clients today also is, well, I'm not going to do anything if I don't get to do them the way that I really want to do them. Yeah. You know I mean? And so it's really getting into that. And like you're mm. saying rather than yes. that. Oh, amen. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not all or nothing. Um, you know, like it can, there's so much gray and there's so much in between and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think it can be a really tough time. Um, but remembering that again, our bodies are our vessels to experience these beautiful connections that we have with people. And if the connections aren't beautiful, then we can find something that's beautiful. Um, whether that's, you know, hugging our pets or I don't know, listening to a podcast, um, you know, just finding again, using your self-care kit, finding ways to ground yourself and regulate that nervous system. Yep. Yeah. I, I love all <laughs> the questions. Sorry. Oh, I, I up. <laughs> he's, he's voting. Yes. Is it? Yes. Geo agrees. <laughs> Geo agrees. Oh, well, Jane, thank you so much. This was such a powerful conversation. Your story is so deeply inspiring. The work that you're doing is incredible. Um, And I know people will want to connect with you just from this conversation. So where can they find you, fall in love with you and also work with you? Yes. Thank you so much for having me. Um, Recovery, love and care all spelled out on Instagram. My website is recoveryloveandcare.com. If you want to, um, if you're interested in coaching or becoming a coach, I do trainings for that as well. Um, you can reach out to me at recoveryloveandcare at gmail.com. And then, um, yeah, my Instagram and all of that, we started the and initiative. That's all about, um, basically it's a charitable gifting service for allowing people to live their and life. Um, we're giving away a rollator right now through Byacre, which is an amazing, amazing company that makes beautiful, um, sexy rollators. Um, so we're doing all that good stuff over the holidays and yeah, I'm just so honored to be on here. Um, and uh, yeah, thank you for having such a wonderful conversation. Thank you. We'll link everything in the show notes too, so that we'll keep it super easy and you'll have to come back for round two. Like we were just, love to. Out. so please, um, this is not goodbye. This is just so long. Yeah. And hope you have a really amazing start to your new year. And, um, thank you so much, truly. You too. Happy new year. <laughs> That's our show. Thank you for spending time with us today. Our show producer is Stephanie Olea. Shayla Anderson is our community manager. 
For more information around healing your own relationship with food and body image, click the show notes and you'll find direct links to our guests plus resources and more. If this conversation resonated with you, please leave a review and share it with a friend so that we can continue to heal and empower these important topics around our relationship with food and body. Sending you so much love, confidence, and strength. I'll see you next week for another episode.